Hello everyone, welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Ayana Jordan. She's an assistant professor of psychiatry here at Yale University. I'll let her tell us a little bit about herself. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Max. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you today. I am uh, assistant professor, as you stated, and I am an addiction psychiatrist. So that means that I specialize in people who have problems really li- living a wonderful life because of substances or some type of uh, addiction. So very happy to be here with you today. And you also went to Hampton. Listen, the real HU to all my Hamptonians out there. Max and I have a very uh, wonderful, friendly rivalry going on because he knows what it is, the real HU. But I'm always here for um, how our graduates are really doing amazing things and also historically black colleges and universities uh, generally. Right. Uh, so you're my guest today, so I'm going to let you have that real HU moment. <laughs> Uh, but <laughs> yeah. let's delve into addiction medicine. So what brought you to going into addiction medicine? Yeah, I think really what it was, and I've re- reflected on this quite a bit because it wasn't a straight path for me. So I uh, started in my career really in the basic sciences. I did a lot of work um, in virology and HIV and really thought that I was going to do like infectious disease, which is like studying uh, viruses that somehow are communicable. And uh, I went to New York really bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, really thinking that I was going to be a basic science researcher and started an MD-PhD program. And during that time, I was able to work in the South Bronx. And for me, I can tell you, I had never seen poverty like I saw in the South Bronx, uh, ever. And I grew up in a very kind of lower middle class uh, life in in Pittsburgh. And so it's not like I was surrounded by riches, but this was really devastating for me. And I was doing psychiatry at the time. And I said, this is devastating. There are people who are in the United States that are dealing with substance use and addiction on a daily basis and are not getting the help that they deserve. And that experience really transformed my life. And I began to uh, look within. My father has um, uh, an alcohol use disorder. My cousin has a cocaine use disorder. And so this was always in my life. And I said, I I really think that I have to follow this. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but I knew that I needed to help um, basically brown and black people do better Mm -hmm. and live better lives. Yeah. Uh, And so we've been in an epidemic for the past few years, um, right around the time of like you finishing your addiction fellowship. Mm -hmm. Um, And something that, you know, in this specific era has been talked a lot about has been how much more this is affecting um, sort of white, rural, or suburban communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in our media a lot more. But what, I mean, it has been coverage a little bit. I've seen articles in Vox and, say, the Washington Post kind of talking about how this is affecting the black community, but it's not nearly as heard as mm-hmm. it should be. Right. And so I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of how this is affecting our black communities um, and sort of what is missing both in the coverage but also in the help that ought to be dispatched. Yeah. So, Max, you're laying it on thick today, a very loaded question. So um, I'd like to just kind of break it down piece by piece if that's okay because mm-hmm. I think... Um, 
you're a hundred percent correct in saying that. Uh, yeah, just the, the way that it's affecting Black people is not being adequately covered. We shouldn't have to search for certain articles here and there. It should be on the greater scale, just like uh, the the coverage for the opioid crisis is on white communities. The one thing that I will say, though, and I say this in all of my talks, um, uh, I've published a paper re fairly recently in 2018, talking about the opioid crisis in black communities that I would refer you to uh, in terms of it was on, in the Journal of Law and Ethics, so people can really get more detail. But the bottom line is, take home point is, the, the suffering of black and brown bodies is nothing new in, in this country, it has been largely ignored, and the same thing is happening within the opioid crisis. And I will say that this is not the first time that this country has had an opioid crisis. Right, we had an Yes, yes. So, so 1960s and 70s, when largely the demographic was black men and black women who were using uh, heroin, predominantly black men, there was not nearly this amount of coverage. And what happened was, instead of being treated like an illness that it is, it was resulted in, yeah, exactly, heavy criminalization. And people are still in jail if they haven't died because they didn't receive treatment because of the Rockefeller laws that were enacted at the time. So I think we cannot, I actually think it's quite racist and it does not um, respect those who were using back in the 60s and 70s when you are talking only about the crisis now, really negating their experiences. So I will say I'm happy that there was a change in the narrative because now when people are like, oh, the opioid next, the addict next door or the new face of the opioid crisis, by bringing in the face of whiteness, it does allow compassion mm -hmm. <laughs> by proxy for black people. So we can use that context to get people help. But the tragedy in all of this is even with the white suffering that's being cast as a result of, of the opioid crisis, black people are still not getting the help that they deserve. And so that's what I'd like to really concentrate on is how can we, even in this current landscape, really focus on um, what's happening in black communities. Mm -hmm. And so what, what have you seen? Yeah. So, so much. So I, I'll start off by saying that it's important to really talk about cult culturally informed um, experiences, because one thing that I will say is that the use is not equal, right? Mm -hmm. So black people are not using the, at the same level as white people, right? So it is true that more white people are actually dying because of their opioid use. So rates of opioid overdose deaths are in fact higher for white people. But the gag is that it is the same thing for um, Native Americans and American Indians, which nobody talks about that. Like, they're totally eliminated from the story, right? Mm -hmm. We hardly hear about them. So their rates in terms of opioid overdose deaths, when we're looking at um, SAMHSA data, data from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration up to 2016, we're seeing that they have a rate of about 12% Native Americans right on par with white people and dying. Mm-hmm. Going back to the topic on hand for for black people, the rate is lower around eight to ten. But the thing is, the rate of increase. Mm -hmm. So, the extent in which the increase is going up is mm -hmm. much. 
faster in black people. So mm-hmm. even though the people are not dying at the same rate as, as uh, Af- American Indians and whites, the rate of increase is doubling. And so that is really troubling, right? And so the thing is, what is causing that rapid rate of increase mm-hmm. with the opioid overdose deaths? And it's not well understood, but we do have some clues from the literature. And so what we're seeing, we, meaning researchers who really work in the field of substance use, is that a lot of it has to do with the type of opioids that are being abused. Mm -hmm. So by far, more whites are likely to abuse prescription opioids. So those are things like oxycodone, Percocet, Tylenol 3s, things like that. Whereas uh, blacks still, their most commonly used opioid of choice is heroin. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so we think that there is an increased rate in the opioid overdose deaths because we're having a contamination of fentanyl with heroin. Mm-hmm. Okay? So there was a really, really nice um, publication that just came out looking at. If we break down the different types of opioids, what are the types of opioids that are the leading cause of people dying? And mm-hmm. we know that it's fentanyl, right? Mm-hmm. So the fentanyl rate in terms of black people has increased by 140%. 140%. So that is one of the leading reasons why we're seeing that sort of that steep increase in opioid overdose deaths. But this is not being talked about. Like, that article came out at the beginning of this year. Where's the coverage on CNN? Mm-hmm. Where's New York Times talking about this? It's not being discussed. So you feel like I'm shouting, like, in an empty room. It's like, how are we targeting these people? How are we, are we getting them involved in care so we understand are they actually using fentanyl alone? Are they using heroin that's contaminated with fentanyl, which we think might be the leading cause of these deaths? Are, are they using cocaine? In my everyday practice with black and brown people, what I'm seeing is that some of them are being exposed to fentanyl and they don't even realize because it is mixed in with their cocaine, right? So their primary substance use disorder is cocaine and the fentanyl is mixed in. They don't even know. So that's another reason why. And let me just say the number two uh, illicit killer uh, is cocaine, not mm-hmm. op- opioids. So I just want to put that out there because mm-hmm. cocaine is killing more people than opioids. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's many different crises. I don't want to take away from the opioid, but I just want people to realize that. Cocaine. So it- Yeah. So it's a lot. It's heavy. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to ask you about the way in which sort of interventions have been going mm. in, in the different communities. Like how, because obviously the government has been um, sort of putting money behind mm-hmm. addressing the opioid epidemic. Billions and billions of dollars. So not only, you're absolutely right. So NIH has this new HEAL, H-E-A-L initiative, mm-hmm. helping end addiction and all lives, I think it is. But basically, they're putting a lot of money in dealing with the opioid epidemic. Same thing with CDC, same thing. Center for Disease Control, same thing with um, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health and Service Administration. So billions of dollars are going into treating the opiate epidemic. The problem that I always say is, and it's not just me, it's been said uh, in the the greater sociopolitical discourse and also in the literature is, 
just because you throw money at the problem, if you don't understand the root, right, the underlying issue doesn't necessarily mean that the problem is going to go away. And that's exactly what we're seeing, because even though billions of dollars are being spent, it has not curbed the crisis that we're seeing and definitely not amongst minority communities. And so what is that about? I always say the root is really racism, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, A system based on race, right? Dr. Comrade Jones, she has a wonderful definition that preferentially uh, is able to benefit certain people versus others. So that really is what's happening right here, right? There's a preferential access to resource goods and services because you look like one way as opposed to another another way. And that's exactly what's happening. So in terms of who is deemed uh, able or worthy of getting treatment uh, is something that we have to grapple with. The the places where treatment is being offered is not necessarily in the minority communities. Who has access to those treatment? Let's just say that they happen to be in minority communities. Who has access to the treatment is not being accessed by minority patients. The cost of coverage for medication-assisted treatment like Suboxone, which we know is the standard of care, Many Medicaid facilities, so a lot of underrepresented minorities and definitely the black population is covered under Medicaid, right, which is a government-funded agency for healthcare. There are actual Medicaid facilities who don't even provide Suboxone, mm-hmm. right? So how can we talk about equitable treatment in the midst of an opioid crisis when we don't even have our our federally funded agencies requiring everyone to offer that, knowing that that is where most black people are going to be insured by. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And people who are able to access Suboxone outside of that system usually are of a higher socioeconomic status. Right. So I I did a prior episode with uh, Dr. Helena Hansen where Mm -hmm. we talked about the sort of history and sort of cultural anthro behind how we got to having this sort of two-tiered addiction treatment system where, you know, black people are tied to going to a methadone clinic and um, their wealthier slash white counterparts are able to receive treatment from providers who are able to prescribe them Suboxone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I am so happy that you had my colleague and really mentor, Dr. Hansen, because she is on it and really leading a lot of the groundbreaking work and really revealing kind of the racist structures that allow for this two-tiered system Mm -hmm. to, to exist. So I appreciate your point, Max, really focusing in on why is one community tied to, uh, an opioid treatment program that provides methadone, which actually is a really, really good treatment. So I'm mm-hmm. not throwing methadone under the table here, but it, the reality is it's a lot more intrusive. You have to go on, on a daily basis, right? It can be very disruptive and being able to work and gain employment, whereas more white folks are able to go to their doctor's office and just get a prescription and go home and mm-hmm. go sometimes on a weekly or even monthly basis. So, so we have to be clear about uh, 
the two different systems that are occurring and also how it affects people's ability to live life. That's mm-hmm. the thing, right? Because at the end of the day, what I want is for people to be alive, to be able to enjoy life, to take care of their families, to have some meaning, some, to have some purpose. And in order to do that, you have to be involved in the treatment system. And we know the standard of care is medication-assisted treatment, but we're not doing what it takes for that to for everyone to have equitable access, despite the billions of dollars that are being um, poured into this. So the question really is for me, how do you deal with racism that leads to racist structures that allow two different tiers to exist, mm-hmm. but still somehow think that everyone is going to benefit. It's not going to happen, right? Right, right? That's the bottom line. And so I think that is when we can really focus on, okay, what culturally informed treatment options can we think of, we meaning researchers and providers, that will allow equitable access to care for minority populations? And that's kind of really what my work focuses on. I see. And so I know you're doing some interventions mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in our New Haven community here yeah. uh, in terms of addressing, um, you know, addiction. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, thank you, Max. I And I, I'm just so thankful to you to have this platform to be able to, to talk about this. And so I appreciate being a guest um, on your show. So really, one of the things that I am working on is really is really partnering with faith-based organizations, faith-based organizations, and really to see if they can be, I think, a cultural broker Mm -hmm. in getting people with substance use disorders more generally into care and definitely making sure that we have a specialized track for people with opioid use disorders, mainly heroin use, because we know that's what uh, most black opioid users are using is heroin. So... Two exciting projects that are going on right now. One is a project called Imani Breakthrough. Imani means faith in Swahili, and we... Come on, Kwanzaa. Yeah, you better come on, Kwanzaa, Wakanda forever. (laughs) So the point is, with Imani Breakthrough, we are working in five different churches. Well, actually, four black churches, and then we actually had two additional churches for the Latino community. And it is a... 22-week program. I work in collaboration with uh, Dr. Sherelle Bellamy, who is also uh, an addiction researcher here at Yale. And the point is, is that we focus on the whole entire person and making sure that people are linked to care. So let me be clear. All of the sessions are in the church themselves, right? So we're in Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Haven, Hartford, and it's really nice because we have the sessions that are led by peer facilitators. So those are people who literally have dealt with opioid use disorder, now are in recovery, or cocaine use disorder, now are in recovery, and they are leading these sessions after they undergo training by through myself or Dr. Sherelle Bellamy. And once they have been able to understand what brought them to their addiction and what were the choices that led to them not being in a good place in their life, then we're able to link them to traditional settings of care. 
But you have to have that comfort and that alliance in order for people to feel safe, to be able to access care really in kind of racist systems. Mm -hmm. So traditional settings of care may not value them as black people, may not understand the, the neighborhoods that they come from, may not value their emphasis on religion and spirituality. So what we do in Imani is we kind of prepare them for the realities of existing substance abuse treatment as it stands now, but they are really loved and equipped and ready to really deal with that. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. So what we focus on in Imani Breakthrough is the five R's, and that's based on the citizen's model. So that means rights, roles, responsibilities, relationships, and resources that you need in order to be a whole person, okay? Mm -hmm. And we say, what are all of those things in your life do you need in order to really establish recovery from substance use disorders, and how can we support you in that? So they have 12 weeks of sessions on the five R's. We also integrate the eight dimensions of wellness from SAMHSA. So those are looking at things that we know have an impact on your health that nobody talks about, Mm -hmm. like your environment, like do you have a job, housing, things like that. And we deal with all of that uh, to help them lead healthier lives. And we're having really great outcomes, so I'm very happy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How has the reception been? Um, oh, my God. So let me just tell you, the commissioner uh, for the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services has been so impressed with our work, and we're so grateful to have uh, her support because she's seen the hundreds of people that have come out to be involved in this program, literally hundreds. Uh, and what we're doing is we're not just allowing people to to participate in the sessions within this church setting, but we're also linking them to treatment. So we're making sure that they get access to Suboxone if they want it or methadone if that's preferential for them. We're making sure that they get on medication-assistant treatments for alcohol use disorder, which nobody talks about, right? So that's killing people in the community too. So It's been overwhelmingly wonderful and actually engaging with the people who are being affected Mm -hmm. um, and getting them into treatment. So we're so happy to have her support. And then also what's really nice is, like I said, because of the success of Imani Breakthrough, which focused on the four black churches, we have now increased to Latino churches. So that's called... um, Imani Ropiendo, so breaking through, right, in Spanish, and we're in two Latino churches. So now we're in six churches throughout the state of Connecticut, and we're super excited about that. So that's just one project that we're working on. Okay, and what's your second project? Yeah, thank you. So the second project, and that'll be a lot more brief, but basically we are actually providing an evidence-based treatment for substance use disorders in the church setting. Mm. So that's really cool because... Different from Imani, where we have these sessions and we're linking them to care outside of the church, what this project is, we're actually seeing, can we get the same amount of efficacy if we provide the intervention in the church? And so that's what we're doing in a predominantly black neighborhood in a New Haven called Dixwell neighborhood. And we're in the oldest church um you in 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 the city and it's called Dixwell Church and the pastor is Reverend Streets who is an amazing supportive of the supporter of this work and people actually come people with substance use disorders actually come into the church 
and uh, they take an intervention, what's called computer-based training for cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been shown to decrease a host of substances, cannabis, cocaine, alcohol, opioids. And so what we've been able to show, and it's very early in the process, we just wrapped up with our pilot project, but what we've been able to see is just in a short amount of time, just in eight weeks, we see a reduction in the amount of cocaine that people are using and the reduction of the amount of cannabis that people are using. And it's because they are coming to, we think, to a safe setting where they are able to access care. They're still giving urines. They're still giving breathalyzers in the church, but they're able to read scripture. They're able to provide what we call um, like a testimony. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, They're able to participate in praise and worship in a way that they just can't do in traditional specialty settings, right? So it's really awesome. So right now I'm hoping to get a grant from the National Institute of Drug Abuse to really scale this project up so that we can actually do the comparison, what we call a randomized controlled trial, to see if indeed providing treatment in the black church works better than having them go to regular communities. I mean, if we find that this is effective, this model could be replicated all over the nation. That kind of makes me think of uh, that intervention they did in LA for blood pressure uh, exactly. In exactly. Black barber shops. Exactly, Max. This is what I'm saying. It's like really harnessing the awesome uh, resilience that we already have in many black communities and figuring out how can we integrate health. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so impressed that you know about those. Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm really excited to hear about these two projects, and I certainly hope that you get to scale the second one up. Um, Thank you so much for your insight and your time talking about this issue. It's something that's dear um, to me, especially having lived in New Haven, being the epicenter of the opioid epidemic in Connecticut. Um, So it's been a pleasure, and uh, you're always welcome to come back on the pod. I'm happy to. Thank you so much, Max. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.